0: You're listening to a podcast of This Positive Life, TheBody.com's growing collection of first-person stories from people living with HIV. This is Bonnie Goldman, editorial director of The Body. Welcome to The Body and to This Positive Life. I'm here today with Shelley Singer of Los Angeles, California. Shelley was diagnosed in 1997 and she is a longtime HIV prevention educator and activist. Welcome, Shelley. Thank you. I always want to start first with the most important question is when you first found out you were HIV positive in 1997, what was your first feeling about it?
1: My first feelings when I found out were how do I tell my husband and basically like what have I gotten myself into and can I get myself out? I mean, can I do this? Is this something I'm going to survive?
0: What were the circumstances that made you get tested?
1: I had been ill with undiagnosed illnesses for approximately a year and a half, and I'd been in and out of emergency rooms, in and out of hospitals, in and out of doctor's offices for months, um, getting sicker and sicker, and no one knew why. And lots of female problems, I was failing pap smears, I had chronic yeast infections, I... I had all kinds of illnesses and pains and problems, and that started in, in the early months of 1996. By, I'd say, early September of 1997, it had gotten so bad that I had this pain in my chest that felt like a rock, like a boulder was in my throat, and it was pressing down on me to where it was hard to breathe, and I couldn't swallow and I was losing lots and lots of weight, and I couldn't really eat very well, and uh, the pain was just really bad. So I went to another in a series of doctors that I'd been trying to find out what was wrong with me, and this doctor misdiagnosed me with an ulcer and gave me a prescription, as they all had, and told me to come back for a follow-up in two weeks. It was the end of September when I went back for the follow-up, and by this time I now had white stuff growing in my mouth, um, coating my tongue, coating my vocal cords, and I could barely speak. I was also, at this point, so weak that if I wanted to take a shower, I didn't have the energy to dry off afterwards. If I walked to the mailbox, I didn't have the energy to walk back with the mail. So I went back for my follow-up to this doctor regarding my alleged ulcer, and it was someone new, another new doctor. And this doctor looked at my chart and said, it says, here you have an ulcer, how are you feeling? And croaking out as much as I could because I couldn't really speak, I said, not very well, what's this in my mouth? And I opened up my mouth. After a year and a half of illness, that doctor looked at me and went, Oh, my God, why don't you tell me why you're really here? And I just looked at him, and I said, I'm here for a follow-up for my ulcer. And the look he gave me, now I know, was a look like, you really don't know what is wrong with you, but I do. And he said, you have thrush. I never heard of it. I said, what is it? He said it's a yeast infection I knew what a yeast infection was never had one in my mouth <laughs> didn't know what that was and that's when he said okay I have to tell you something you don't have a working immune system and I asked him why would that be and he gave me a few examples of reasons why someone would not have a working immune system a newborn baby I knew that wasn't me someone who had had a transplant or someone who was very, 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 very old. And I knew that wasn't me. And then he said, or someone with AIDS, someone who's had years of HIV destroying their immune system. And at that moment, I knew that wasn't me, too, because I didn't think women got HIV. And so, you know, I had been picking off on my fingers each time he mentioned A reason for not having an immune system. And so after those three, I held up my fourth finger like the Shelley category. Why don't I have an immune system? And he just stopped talking and was looking at me. And I'm looking at him and he's looking at me. And finally he goes, you still don't understand what I'm telling you, do you? And I said, no, I do not. And he said, I'm so sorry, but I'm telling you that I'm diagnosing you with full-blown AIDS. Without a, without a blood test? He didn't need one. He just looked at me and said, I'm telling you that I believe you have AIDS, that that's what this is. And I was floored. And he said, have you ever had an HIV test? And I said, no, of course not. I'm, I'm married. I'm a woman. Why would I, you know, come on. What city was this? This was here in L.A., well, wow. L.A. was the the place where
0: HIV was first recorded, actually, the, and there were huge numbers of people living with HIV from the early part of the epidemic. So many people should have been more familiar with it than your experience shows.
1: Right. And, and uh, like I said, uh, for a year and a half, I had been in five different hospitals. I had been admitted into hospitals three times. I had already had major abdominal surgery where they removed my fallopian tubes because of infection, and none of that made anyone ask a question. The pelvic inflammatory disease, the chronic yeast infections, the failed pap smears, the hospitalizations, the intense pain, the infections, what they thought was the ulcer, none of that made anyone ask a question. And I, on the other hand, trusted that doctors are gods. They know these things. And so I didn't question. Well, I questioned, but I didn't dig deep. I didn't say, well, why am I sick? Why is this? I just, you know, if they said, oh, it looks like this, here's a prescription, come back later. I took it verbatim. I took it as it is and said, okay, uh, in fact, looking back, a friend asked me, well, don't you want to know why you're so sick? And I said, no, it just matters to me that I get my medicine and get better. And now I realize perhaps she knew something. <laughs> Maybe she was a little wiser than me and didn't want to say anything outright, but was trying to get me to question deeper. And But I didn't. And it wasn't until he said, well, would you agree to taking an HIV test here in my office now before you leave? And since he had told me he thought I had AIDS, I was like, okay, sure. And I thought, well, I guess everyone should get an HIV test sometime in their life. I mean, I was so naive. I was so naive. So I just said, "Um, okay. And he goes, great. I'm going to go out and set up the test with my nurse right now. And you wait here. And I'm going to send someone else in. So another doctor came in. The other doctor said, I want to look in your mouth. I opened up my mouth and he just took one look and leaned back and said, Yes, you understand why we're worried. And my mind was racing. I thought, Why would a doctor say we're worried? And then I thought, This is my second opinion. This is real. I'm in trouble. And these guys are telling me something that I don't know how to handle. I don't even know what they're talking about. So I went in the hallway to the lab, and I got my blood drawn. And he also gave me an appointment for the next morning in a hospital outpatient at 8 a.m. for a test with a gastroenterologist because of the thrush in my mouth and my throat and the pain in my chest. And so I was whisked out of that office to my husband waiting in the waiting room, who asked me, so, how's your ulcer? And I just stared at him. And we walked out into the hallway to the elevator, and I said, well, I don't have an ulcer. And he was like, well, that's good. Then what's wrong? And I just sort of, it all hit me, all came rushing to the you know, front of me. And I said, he says he thinks I have AIDS. And I collapsed onto the carpet in front of the elevator in a heap crying as the words came out of my mouth. And when the elevator doors opened, people had to step over me and around me because uh, he couldn't move me. And finally I got he, he must have been standing there open-mouthed. He he was. He just was shocked. And for some reason, even though I didn't know why or anything, I knew that it was me. I, I, I never once, never thought my husband gave this to me, my husband. I knew who I was and who he was and how I lived my life and where I'd been in my life. I kept thinking in my head, Oh my god, did I kill my husband? You know, oh my god, what have I done? Oh my god, what's happening to me and all of these crazy thoughts in my head. And then we went outside and we were on a motorcycle. He rode me there on a motorcycle. I got on the back of the bike and we were actually legally separated, so we were driving back to my apartment and I thought about letting go off the back of the bike. I did. The 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 ride home I thought I can't deal with this. If I let go, it'll all be over. But then being a pragmatist, I thought, but what if I don't die, and now I'm paraplegic or something with AIDS? Now what do I do? Now who's going to take care of me? Now how do I live? So the fear of not actually dying was worse than the fear of living. I know that doesn't make sense, but when you're thinking of letting go off a motorcycle – The fear of the pain of falling on the asphalt, the fear of being hurt was greater to me than the thought of dying and greater than the fear of how was I going to live, the pain, and I just held on. I just went, wait, I I have to think about this, and I held on for the ride back to my apartment. The next morning, I went and had my test at the hospital, and I found out that pressure was not an ulcer. It was esophageal candidiasis. And so before I ever got the results of the blood test, the enterologist who did the throat test gave me an AIDS-defining illness, esophageal candidiasis. So by the time I got my lab results back from the blood test and found out I had 54 T cells, I had two separate AIDS-defining
0: Meaning, meaning, thrush in your mouth and thrush in your esophagus. Right. Did your husband stay with you that night, or was he in shock or upset or?
1: He was in shock, and he stayed with me because I I was like a zombie. I was numb, so he he just stayed with me on the couch. And when we went back a week later for the full results, he went with me, and said, "We need to work this out. We need to be together." Because everyone thought I was dying. Well, I was physically, you know, and everybody just assumed I would die. And And he also went for his testing. I imagine he went for his test, and he came out HIV negative. Mm -hmm. So then, how long had you been together? We started dating in 1991. Got married in 1992. I started getting sick in '96, and this was September of '97. And during that entire time, I did not transmit HIV to him.
0: You had unprotected sex?
1: Oh, yeah. From
0: okay. 91 to
1: 97?
0: hmm So how, how do you think you were infected with HIV?
1: Well, I know I never used a condom in my life. Meaning not only with your husband,
0: but with other men?
1: With anyone. Uh-huh. I never used a condom. I didn't like them.
0: You didn't ask a man to wear a condom, ever?
1: I never asked a man. If a man asked me, do you want me to use a condom? I said no.
0: And you felt that your only risk was pregnancy, so right. you you took the pill. Right. Uh-huh. But, again, you never thought HIV was a risk. And during that time, I don't think many women
1: did. No. In Florida, in 1986, I was friends with this wonderful, wonderful dear man named Thomas. And he was a gay man. And we were dear friends and would talk all the time. And he, I remember this because it's one of the first thoughts that I had at my diagnosis. We were talking back in 1986. I was living in Florida with friends. And he said, I'm so afraid of this disease, this illness that's out there. It's killing gay men. And I said, yeah, I've heard of it. And he goes, I'm so afraid for my friends and for myself, but I'm so glad that you'll never have to worry about that. And I took him at his word. I thought this was a gay disease, and I thought I would never have to worry about it. So I never did course i knew there was aids i read about it in the newspapers i i would post fundraising events for aids service organizations and um you know do the aids walk and all of this stuff but i never considered that it was something i should worry about i was shocked when they told me i had aids i i didn't know women got it i was that ignorant that naive i never knew I never used a condom.
0: You were told more or less that you were probably going to die soon. Did they say uh, how long you had when they diagnosed
1: you? Not at that moment. The doctor gave me a piece of paper that had two names on it of HIV specialists in the Los Angeles area. One of them was Dr. Michael Gottlieb.
0: He wrote the first report about people living with HIV that he noted in his area, I believe.
1: Yes, he did. And one of his former colleagues... Dr. Jeffrey Galpin was the other name. And so he said, go to these two guys, shop them, see if you like one of them over the other, because this is going to be a lifelong partnership. So Mm -hmm. find the right doctor. And if neither of these two guys get referrals, find the right doctor, someone that answers to your needs and what you want, because this is very important. So I went to each of these doctors. I set up appointments. And for the next several weeks, I would go to these doctors and just kind of, like, interview them, Mm -hmm. show them my lab reports, talk to them about their style of treatment, what they knew, how they wanted to uh, proceed. And I decided that uh, Dr. Galpin, he was aggressive, he was frank and knowledgeable, and I just instantly liked him. And so that's how I picked the HIV doctor that I wanted to see, and I saw him in October of 97, and he put me on medicine. Do you remember your first regimen? Oh, it was so hard to take, yes. It was 12 pills of Norvir a day, 9 pills of Inverace sequiniver a day, Two pills of Zeret and two pills of Epivir, plus all the prophylaxis and the diflucan for the thrush. So
0: by prophylaxis, you mean you took meds to prevent opportunistic infections like pneumonia
1: and other things? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, they put me on Bactrim, but the first thing that happened was I discovered I had a very bad allergy to Bactrim, and I got even sicker. And so I had to treat that first before I could go on to the anti-HIV meds. So that was a little bit of a setback right away. But then I got on the HIV meds, and a year after I started, my parents came out for a visit, and they wanted to meet my doctor because he had kept me alive for a year, and they really wanted to meet, meet this guy. And I took them to meet my doctor, and he told them, he said, I never told Shelly this because I will never put a limit on someone. I will never tell them you have this time span or something. He goes, but I'm going to tell you now because I'm so proud of her and of the accomplishment of how far we've come. I'm going to tell you that when she walked into my office in October of 1997, I knew from my years of experience in treating HIV patients, that if she did nothing, if she did not get on treatment, if she did absolutely nothing where she stood, she had eight months left to live. And I looked at him. I said, you never told me that. And he goes, no, I would never tell you, you have eight months to live, because I don't believe in that. He said, what I knew was that if you did absolutely nothing, that's where you were in your HIV disease. Because you
0: had advanced HIV, because you had had only 52 T-cells, and you had opportunistic infections.
1: I had three opportunistic infections and and a count of 54 Mm T-cells. And he said, I knew from my experience that, that that advanced stage, you probably had eight months left. If you did nothing. Mm-hmm. And I said, so that was a year ago. And he smiled and he said, that's right. That was a year ago. So, you know.
0: What was your CD4 count or your T cells by by that time
1: after by a that year? Time my T cells were 321. Oh, great. Yeah. So
0: they really yeah. rose.
1: Mm-hmm. And he he looked at me and he goes, but see, when you aren't limited by what someone else's expectations are, when someone else says this is all you're going to be, he goes, when you're not limited, when you believe in yourself and you believe that you can do anything, you can, and you're proof of it. He goes, who would have ever known you could get your T-cell count not just over 200, but 321? Who could could have ever expected you to be as healthy as you are sitting here in front of me today? Who could have ever guessed any of this? It, you have all the possibilities in front of you so long as you don't allow anyone to limit you.
0: And at that point, you you know, with all those pills, the 12 pills of Norvier, the 9 pills of et cetera, it was a, kind of a full-time job just to take meds because some were with food, some were without food. Yes. Is that true?
1: Yes, I had to try to get up in the morning, eat a full breakfast, take six pills, wait an hour and a half so that I could take other pills within the two hours after eating constantly trying to figure out what to eat, when to eat, how to eat it, what time was it, where was I going to be, was I going to be in a place that had good food, food safety, food storage. Oh, my gosh, it was so confusing. I would have people call me, please call me at 2 o'clock, and say, Hi, Shelley, Have you eaten yet? Have you taken your meds yet? I, I had alarm clocks going off. I had pill boxes, and I still to this day carry a full day's dose of pills with me. Just
0: in case you don't get home at a certain time?
1: At all times. Uh-huh. That's right. Just in case. Because you never know the car breaks down and someone says, well, why don't you spend the night, because it's 8 p.m. and there is no garage to fix your car, why don't you spend the night and we'll fix it in the morning? Well, what am I going to do? Right, you, you can't
0: say, well, I have to go home for
1: meds anyway. Right, yeah. so I, I always carry my uh, full day's dose with me. And if I'm going to spend the night somewhere, I carry not only the next day's dose, but an extra day on Just in case. It. Mm -hmm. Just in case my plans change. I always have to be sure that if plans change, I'm prepared.
0: So let's go back to after you were first diagnosed and a couple days later. Who was the first person you told besides your husband?
1: I called my parents
0: in North Carolina. Did you expect them to react okay or were you expecting the worst?
1: I didn't really know what to expect. I was just in a panic. I've always been independent. I have always been on my own, done whatever I needed to do. I'm not the kind of person that calls home every day. All of a sudden, I was faced with something for the first time in my life that I felt kind of afraid and unequipped. I I was just... Thrown into a tailspin, and so I reverted back to mommy. How old were you? My birthday's the thirty first of August, so mm-hmm. this was late September. So just a few weeks ago, I had turned thirty eight, and um, you know, up until up until this diagnosis, my biggest panic was, oh, I'm approaching forty, <laughs> and mm-hmm. now all of a sudden, I'm like, well, wait a minute, will I even reach forty? You know, all of a sudden, now it was a goal and not not something to be. Feared. I was like, wait a minute, I want to reach 40 now. Now I need to. So I called my mom and dad, and I just cried to them, and I said, I don't know what to do. I don't know if I'm dying. I don't know, I don't know what to do. And they reassured me. My mom asked me if I had told my sisters, who all live in different states and countries, and I said no, that, that they were the first people I called. And my mom said, can I call them? First, because it will help you. You won't have to keep saying all of this over and over and over again. But also because it will help me, because I need to say it over and over again. I need to process this. I need to to get it into my head.
0: Wow. Your mother sounds amazing.
1: Okay. she a therapist? <laughs> she, no, no, just a, a really cool lady. Uh-huh. So she just said, can I call your sisters? Can I tell them? I need to... You know, I I think she needed to do what I was doing. Mm -hmm. I needed to call my family. I needed to, to get that reassurance, and she needed that. She suddenly felt alone where she was, and she needed that reassurance. And so she was like, can I call your sisters? Can I tell them I need that bond? I need my daughters. I need my family. This is too much for me alone. And so I said, yeah, would you do that? So she called one by one. She called my three sisters, and then one by one they called me. And since now they had been told, I didn't have to go through all that beginning that, um, um, I have something to tell you. So they called saying, Mom just called. What can I do? What's going on? How are you? And so then I could just jump right into the emotional support. Great. So did you find that you got a lot of emotional support from them? I did, and I still do. I get a lot of emotional support from from my family. It took me quite a few years to tell cousins. My grandparents, I never told. They died not knowing. I, I couldn't do that.
0: And why didn't you tell them?
1: I guess I didn't want to disappoint them. I didn't want them to change what they, not what they thought of me, but I didn't want them to be afraid I didn't want them to be afraid that I was going to die. You know, I didn't want to disappoint them and change how they felt and, and the relationship we had. I just I couldn't deal with that.
0: After you told your family and your sisters found out, and, did you tell friends?
1: Yes. I told my closest childhood friends. I called them up because they're in New York and, and in Florida places I've lived and where I grew up in New York. So I called my childhood friends, and I told them one by one, and they were all very supportive. And then my friends out here, I did a rather crazy thing. Well, first, my my most intimate, closest friends, I, one by one, invited them to dinner. And so I would have them over for dinner at my house, and I would cook a nice dinner, and we would sit down and, and talk. And then I said, I have something to tell you. And then I told them, been, yeah, I know you know that I've been very, very ill. Well, this is why. This is what it is. And ironically, a dear couple that I invited over one night to disclose my AIDS diagnosis looked at me, and, and I had known them now for five years, looked at me and said, well, Shelley, then I guess it's time we disclose. And I said, what are you talking about? And they said, we both have AIDS also. Wow. Yeah. I did not know that. So here we were. Now we had known each other, we were very close friends, saw each other every week for five years and by my telling them that I had AIDS, they admitted that they both did too. It was weird. It was <laughs> very weird. Because now they knew it for years and years. I had only found out for maybe a couple months. So I was much newer to it than they were, and they were kind of reassuring to me. Um, they've both since passed away, mm-hmm. but uh,
0: not me. <laughs> but they served as a guide in a way? They told you about resources and stuff no, like that? No? no,
1: they more like lived in denial. Mm-hmm. They did not take medicine. They did not seek help. Well, why didn't they take medicine? I really don't know. In fact, the male friend, I don't want to say his name, But the male friend, his parents begged me to make him take meds. Look at how healthy you're getting. Look at how strong you're getting. Please tell our son. Please make him. And I said, I can't make anyone do anything. I said, he does see how much healthier I'm getting. He does see the weight that I'm regaining. He does see that I'm getting stronger. But all I can be is a support for him and a friend to him like I've always been. And if it's his choice to not take medicine, I don't agree with it. I wish he would do more. But I have to support him in his decision to be who he is. And it was heartbreaking, and it was very confusing emotionally for me to watch someone deliberately ignore and deny what could have saved his life, and to love him anyway, and to watch him die, knowing that at the same time I'm swallowing 30 pills a day, struggling to to regain my health and, and my life, and I'm watching him give it up. It was really, really hard. You owned this bar for eight years with your husband. Right. Of uh, sports karaoke bar. Okay. Sports and karaoke bar. Yeah. So that's how I disclosed to the general population. First what I did was I had my friend my intimate friends over for dinner and I told them one by one. And when all my closest friends knew you know, my dearest, most intimate social circle. When they all knew, that's when I had the fundraiser at the bar and I disclosed to the general population. I was a big fundraiser. I loved doing that. I would create these fundraising big events and I would host them in my bar and raise all this money and give it all away. I loved doing that. So now I find out I've got AIDS. Now they're used to, I, I had already done an APLA thing. I'd already done all this stuff in the bar. So I'm now having this big fundraising event for APLA. And you know Sy Sperlman, the hair club for men? Mm-hmm. You know how he says, I'm not just the president of the hair club for men, but I'm also a client, and he pulls the wig off and shows that he's bald? I did that. I had my big fundraiser event, and I got up and I thanked everybody for being there, and I told them we were raising money for AIDS Project Los Angeles, and then I disclosed, and I said, and this time I'm not just the fundraiser but I'm also a client. Was there a gasp? It was a gasp, yes. There was a gasp. No one knew. Yeah, my husband was there. I mean, he knew, but no one knew. And they all just stopped, and they were like kind of looking at me and then whispering to each other like, what did she say? What did she say? Did she mean? Did she say? Did what, what, what? And I said, yes. Yes, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying that the illness that you've all known that I have had that you didn't know what it was is AIDS and that I have AIDS, and I'm a client of AIDS Project Los Angeles, and so this fundraiser helps people with AIDS, including myself. And they were like, whoa. And I raised $2,000 that night. This is a bar with a capacity of 64, tiny, little tiny neighborhood bar, you know, one of those little neighborhood bars you go into with the red vinyl seats and booths and stuff like that, you know. I had to talk to my husband. I was like, do you think this will hurt your bar? Will this hurt your business? Will this hurt you? Will this have repercussions against you? And when he said, you do what you need to do, this is about you not me, I went, okay, then I'm letting you know I'm going to disclose in front of the bar. And he said, okay, do what you need to do. So I did. Did you ever find
0: a support group or did you not feel you needed one?
1: Almost right away, I found a support group. Again, it was someone else that found it for me who made a phone call to an agency here in Los Angeles. And a woman got on the phone, and I will tell you her name. Her name is Marilyn, and she was my mentor. She took me under her wing. She brought me to my first support group that she facilitated. She was an HIV-positive woman. In APLA? No, at Women Alive. Women Alive. (laughs) At Women Alive. She brought me into the fold, and that was the first time when I was in a room full of women, And I looked around that room, and I said, you all have HIV? And they're like, oh, yes, yes, everyone. And they went around the room and said, I was diagnosed in this year. I was diagnosed here. This is my life story. This is how I found out. This is where I am now. And I was amazed, and I just... Oh, my gosh! I felt like I was home. I felt like, okay, so then you're all living, you're all thriving, you're all fighting, you're all dynamic women you didn't turn into zombies. you don't have purple skin, you're not monsters or you're you're real great, vibrant, normal women. Wow, I can do this i I can do this, and so i I just stuck to them like glue i just i joined the agency marilyn took me to advocacy meetings she took me to policy focus forums she took me to political meetings of hiv commissions i mean she just she took me around with her to all this advocacy and activism and and just showed me the dynamic vibrant life of activism, of fighting, of standing up, of speaking out, of being heard, of making a difference, of being alive, of being aware. It saved my life. It saved my life. It showed me that there was life, that I wanted life, that I could have life, and that life could be really fulfilling and worth anything I went through.
0: And what were the, the particular skills they gave you to feel that way? What? inspired you so much?
1: First of all, when I would go into a focus forum or a commission meeting or something and, and speak up, I saw it made a difference. People listened. They would ask me questions. It might change a policy. It, it came out in a report that this was reported or that that was found. And it changed things. It made a difference. And I saw that. So I knew I have I have power. I have a voice. I I do matter in life. So that was really influential. I also learned so much by being in this support group. I learned simple things like food safety, how to eat, what was important. If I had a side effect, if I was nauseous, if I was ill, if I had a problem, how could I fix it? How could I identify it? How to talk to my doctor, how to ask questions, how to be proactive how to meet other women, how to disclose to other women that I had this, how to listen to them and support, how to get support, how to find support. Mm -hmm. All those life skills. How often did you go to the group? Uh, This group was every week, so once a week. And I needed it. In the beginning, for the first several years, I needed it. And I was still very sick. I was in the hospital nearly every six months, having surgeries, having more of my body removed. Anything that made me a woman, um, everything that would allow me to be childbearing, all of that was taken away from me. And so I needed it more than ever. And knowing that it was sex without a condom, knowing that it was sex that put me in this position even made me question sex. By this point, were you divorced? By this point, now I was, yeah, all of that was falling apart and the relationship. So everything everything else was falling away, who I thought I was, my self-identity, my self-confidence, my marriage, my thoughts on sex, my sexuality, my sensuality, all of this, what my body looked like. Could I depend on my body? Could I rely on it? All of this was falling away. Friends were falling away. My ability to work was falling away. The one thing that was not falling away was the support of the women around me in this agency and in other agencies as I reached out to APLA AIDS Project Los Angeles being alive which is not a women centered organization but it is an of by and for HIV positive organization so it was a member club kind of a thing all of this never fell away and so I reached out and they reached out to me and they gave me the nurturing and the strength and the push that I really needed, and they kept me going, and I realized that I had an entire community that was not going to let me down, that was not going to abandon me, that understood me, that loved me unconditionally, and that I could thrive in, and so I immersed myself in it and have ever since.
0: How many years in total did you go to the support group, would you say?
1: That particular support group I was in from 1998 through about 2001, maybe. There was also a support group for heterosexual men and women at APLA that started in, I believe it was like January of 1998, and I'm still a member of it. I'm one of the original members of that group, and that group is now 10 years old, Mm -hmm. and is one of the very few heterosexual support groups for men and women Los Angeles. I
0: understand that you you started with the friend, a website for heterosexuals with HIV, and you do events. Tell me a little bit about that. What's um, it called?
1: It's called www.valleyplus, and that's spelled valley, V-A-L-L-E-Y, P-L-U-S plus, dot org. It started because in Los Angeles proper all the agencies, and then in the valley, the San Fernando Valley, there's like nothing. Unless you have another issue, if you're coming out of prison, if you speak another language, if you're of another color, if you're dealing with addiction issues, or whatever, you know, you have hepatitis or whatever co issue, then there's an agency for you. But if your only claim to fame is, I have HIV, period, that's it. I'm just, that's all I, that's my issue is HIV. I couldn't find anything, and so everywhere I went, I kept going. What about the valley? What about the valley? What about the valley? <laughs> so finally, my friend Kathy Olafson and I, we were like talking about it, and I said, "We've got to start our. We've got to start something here." And I, you know what? I'm calling it the Valley. So I actually called it Valley Positive with the plus sign, like HIV positive, that little plus positive sign. So I was calling it the Valley Positive Club, but a friend of mine helped me to create the website, and so she knew more about how to code and things like that. So she put the website together, and you can't use the plus sign. And seeing as it's called a plus sign, she did a domain mm-hmm. name, and she wrote Valley, P-L-U-S, Valley Plus. And it's basically it's just a, it's a, a network of HIV-positive heterosexual men and women. And I really advocate for HIV-positive heterosexual men as much as possible because they are the ignored population. I think sometimes people think that they really don't exist, that there's no such thing as a heterosexual man or something. I'm not really sure.
0: I know you do prevention education in schools. Is that something that you focus on the heterosexual men and their part in the world of HIV and transmitting HIV and taking care of themselves?
1: That's one of my focuses. When I go into schools or at-risk centers for youth, I don't necessarily focus on that because more than likely I'm representing an agency on their speakers bureau. I belong to four different speakers bureaus in Los Angeles. Four agencies, including the Los Angeles Unified School District, their AIDS prevention program and their health department. Uh With them, I just focus on this is prevention, this is transmission, this is my story, this is what you need to to hear. And I don't necessarily go off on one group versus another. It's very all-encompassing. But in my Valley Plus group, or whenever I'm talking to anyone, or whenever I go into a prevention forum as myself. That's my focus. I've got a mailing list in my group of over 300 people just in pretty much Southern California, just people that know about the group. And it, half of them are men. That means there's a minimum of 150 men I can call up right now that are heterosexual men with HIV. <laughs> and how they got it, uh, personally, I don't care. I don't care how they got it. What I care is are they getting education? Are they learning prevention? Are they putting a condom on when they go out with women? That's what I care about. Do they understand who they are? Are they comfortable with who they are?
0: In your group, so you do some prevention, but you also do fun events to get people dating, I guess.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well, we're, we're getting ready for a big Valentine's weekend in Long Beach, and that's going to be a weekend event at a hotel, and we're going to have lots of activities and lots of fun things to do. We did a reggae cruise, a three-hour reggae cruise around Long Beach Harbor one year. We do picnics at the beach. We do parties. We do dinners. We go out to restaurants. And then we do other activities like go bowling or miniature golf for we just love to party and we we always have like a minimum of 50 or 60 people that come and they come from all over because everybody wants to meet other people in the straight world we want to meet men that are looking at us
0: you know? <laughs> is that where you find a lot of dates or do you date people outside of that world
1: I have found dates through the group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of us find, you know, someone to date from, from these events. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. You know, it's a nice, comfortable environment. And we, what's really nice about what we do is we do it out in the quote unquote normal world, out in mainstream. We don't segregate ourselves out and go, okay, we're going to be in the ballroom of this hotel just for us. And we're all going to wear name badges saying we're, you know, no, 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 no. We book a restaurant, and we get badges, but we call ourselves a club. And being positive means you're a member of the club. Mm -hmm. So we say, what year did you join the club? Mm -hmm. And we put that on the name tag. When people meet, you know, we're out in a restaurant or we're at a bowling alley or something. We just look like a big social club. We have name tags, and it says, Shelly, I joined in 1997. That means that's when I got diagnosed. So anybody in our group that can come up and go, hey, you joined the club in '97. I joined it in '97 too. Or, or is you, that the HIV club? Right, the HIV club. Exactly. That's our little code word. So we're out mainstream. We're where everyone is, and and. I think it helps us to feel like we're still part of society. We're not different or weird or or deformed or, you know, I mean, we're not odd. We're just exactly who we were. What's been your experience
0: with discrimination or stigma?
1: Well, I was seeing a dentist for five years before I found out my diagnosis, and we had a great relationship, you know, five years of dentistry. And then I started getting sick, and it was several years where I was just way too ill to, to go to a dentist. So finally, after a few years I, and, and my diagnosis, I went back, and he said, where have you been? And I said, well, I've been ill, and, in fact, I, I want to tell you that I was diagnosed with AIDS. But I'm okay now. I'm on a medical regimen. I'm stable. I'm healthy, and I'm okay. And he's like, oh, all right. And I said, I was a little nervous because I didn't know if you would treat me. And he goes, oh, yes, of course, we'll treat you. So he sticks me in this room. Two of his hygienists come in, and they're in gowns, gloves, and masks. Now, they're not touching me at all, but they're in gowns, gloves, and masks. And they went around that little exam room, and they emptied it. Every bottle. Every jar, every instrument, every magazine, every material that could be picked up and put away or removed was.
0: So they were ignorant about HIV transmission, it sounds Absolutely. like
1: completely.
0: So they I, thought you could breathe on it and it yeah, could like get HIV infected.
1: Spewing this HIV blood all over the walls or something like carry or something. I don't know what they thought, but <sighs> You know, so they didn't
0: did you ask them anything? You just sat there silently. I just sat there you were stunned. I was
1: watching them, and in my head, at first I was like, "Well, I guess they just are afraid of me, and it's my fault, I'm the one with HIV." And I was like, "Well, wait a minute, no, what do they think I'm going to do? And do you know that that and then it hit me. the whole five years that I was with them, I had HIV. I just didn't know it. They didn't know it, and they treated me perfectly normal like anybody else. I never infected them. I never bled on their walls. I never dripped on their instruments. Nothing happened. And in any case, they are supposed
0: to use universal precautions with everybody.
1: Right, but all of a sudden, I was different, and the room was cleared. And when it was empty and sterile, and I was horrified, and when it was empty and sterile, then the doctor came in, and he had... Two coats on a coat going backwards and then another coat going <laughs> forwards. He had two sets of gloves on, both of them over the cuffs of his coat, so that it was a complete seal. He had not only the mask on his face, but he had the clear visor over his forehead. He looked like the doctor out of the Andromeda strain. I mean, you could even hear the Did you say anything? I was stunned. I didn't say a word. I just, like, looked at him. And then he needed to pull a tooth. That's what it was. I was there to pull a tooth. So the the visor, the plastic visor, kept hitting me in the forehead. And he'd go, oh, I'm sorry. Am I hitting you in the forehead? And I'm like, yeah. But he didn't move it. He didn't stop. He just apologized and then kept hitting me in the forehead until I had this red mark. And then he pulled the tooth, and it went, that was it. It popped. It came out. No blood, no blood. I didn't bleed, nothing, nothing. Just pop, out comes the tooth. And then he got up and he walked out. And that was it. And I sat there going, that's it? All of this? And pop, out comes the tooth and I didn't bleed. So I just got up and, you know, I paid and I left and I never went back. But the problem was that so traumatized me that I did not see a dentist for two and a half years after that. My teeth are rotting in my head. I'm not going to a dentist.
0: Until you found out about friendly services. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
1: And agencies, AIDS agencies like APLA, there are AIDS agencies that have dentistry. Um, I think Northeast Valley Health Center, there are other agencies. So I'm sure that any woman in most, most any metropolitan area will be able to find a service organization that offers some kind of dentistry if they can't find someone to take care of them.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, I've heard other stories about this rather recently, so I don't know if dentists are very knowledgeable about HIV transmission, even though their professional guidelines tell them to use universal precautions and assume every single person that walks into their office is HIV infected. They disregard those guidelines. Some of them, you know, treat people badly. So it is a, a minefield for women and for everyone with HIV.
1: Yeah, yeah. What a horrendous
0: thing to go through.
1: It it was bad. It was bad. And I'm not used to stigma in my life. So it, it came as a surprise, but it was also an experience that made me realize what other people go through far more regularly. In their lives. Other people have stigma, discrimination, and feel disenfranchised, feel underrepresented, or feel put upon, or feel misunderstood, or feel, you know, discriminated against in their daily lives. And so I got a taste of that, and it was very humbling, and it really made me realize the struggles that many people go through in life. And it also helped me, it it solidified my belief in activism, that if you know that some people might not be able to be heard or or to stand up against wrongs, and you are a person who can, either you just have the ability or the wherewithal or you're mad enough or whatever, do it. You know, If you can make a stand, whether it's for yourself, your community, someone else you know, do it stand up be heard because not everyone has the same skill set or the ability or the opportunity to to do it and so if you can you you have to
0: what gives you the strength and the ability to do this kind of speaking out on a constant basis? You know, I know you've been on TV on CNN and and you've been to international AIDS conferences and lots of public places where you've spoken. What, what gives you the courage to stand up in front of there and say, yes, I have HIV and this is my story without worrying that someone's going to discriminate against you or not like you or judge you or anything like that? Were you always so fearless when you were younger?
1: Yeah. Okay. (laughs) My parents were activists, back in the 60s and 70s. I mean, growing up in New York State, we didn't eat grapes. We didn't eat lettuce. And when everybody else in the in my neighborhood was going, what are you talking about? Why aren't you eating grapes? It's like, well, there's this guy named Cesar Chavez out in California, and he's a migrant worker, and he says that we're supposed to boycott grapes, so I'm not eating grapes. You know, I mean, my friends didn't know what I was talking about. I was a little girl marching for the ERA with my mom. Marching for civil rights. Uh, we had the Vietnam War on the news on our TV screen every day, and my mother would. Cry and scream, our boys, our boys, I can't stand it. And so we would march against the war. I mean, I was raised an activist. I was raised to raise my fist and and shout out, this is injustice. This is wrong. This is injustice. This is not American. This is not in the Constitution. This is not civil liberties. This is wrong. I'm a member of Amnesty International. I've been a card carrying member of the ACLU since I was. In college, I, it's just in my nature to stand up when injustice is, is exposed, to, to stand up and say, we can do better. And, it's, and that's what it is. It's not just going around going, oh, that's wrong, that's bad. It's saying, no, we can do better. We can improve this. We can change it. We have to make it right. It's not enough to just bitch and say things are wrong. You've got to stand up for how you can make it right. That's the key.
0: I've heard from other activists that it's kind of exhausting, kind of living with HIV and then being an HIV/AIDS activist because it's HIV all the time. Yeah. Do, do you ever need a break and you know stay with Amnesty International for a while <laughs> and do activism there so it's not so close to the bones, not so close to you?
1: In the past, I have thought about it, like oh, I just want to stop all this and be quote unquote normal or whatever. But you know what? It's HIV is everywhere. It's, HIV is in politics. HIV is in economics. HIV is in sex. Sex is the media. Sex is marketing. So HIV should be in marketing. You name it. Schools, education, religion, church. HIV touches every aspect of humanity. And anyone who thinks it's only about a certain population or a certain activity or a certain way of life is way misinformed and hopefully not going to be hit in the face with a big surprise. When I see sex in the media and how it's used to sell everything from a television show to a sandal to a book to a clothing line, I want to go are you if you if you as adults if the world of adults who own the corporations who who make the media if we are so willing to inundate our society and our children and our young people with sex 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 then we darn well better be just as willing and and just as forceful in messages of safety If we're going to make it that sex is the hottest thing there is, then by gosh, we better, you know, it's our responsibility to make it the safest thing we can and not just give them, oh, sex is so hot, but don't do it. Yeah, well, well, sorry, you just sold me every item in my house by showing me how sexy it is. And the word hot and the word sexy is everywhere, but now suddenly you're going, oh, but don't do it. If everyone else is going to tell you how hot sex is, I'm going to go out and tell you to use a condom. I'm going to go out there and tell you that if you want to be sexy, then learn sexy sex. Learn sexy safety. Learn how to put the condom on. Learn to be responsible if you're going to be sexy because you can't turn sex off. You cannot tell people, oh, just don't, just don't, don't ignore it. That's why I've switched my emphasis. The emphasis of of my real activism is youth prevention, because I I think it's just an immoral injustice to not give the youth of this world the facts, the real truth. If we expect them to act as adults, well, adults expect information. They expect the right to choose with informed choice. I know for a fact that abstinence is the absolute 100% factual best way to never, ever get infected. Great. But what about the rest of the world? Do I care about them too? Or do I only care about the people who are willing to follow me without question? No, I care about the rest of the world, too. So if you're not going to heed that absolute fact, then here's something almost as good. Let me tell you the next best thing to know, and that is how else to prevent it.
0: We need people like you because you're going to change the world. You're going to make HIV an acceptable disease. like It's just like any other disease. And people need to get over their stigmatizing of this disease. And we need people like you everywhere, in every town of America, in every place in the world, because the only way it will change is if everyone is exposed to it and understands that. And understands, exactly. It's just a disease and it can't be transmitted
1: casually. Well, here's another one of my little pet peeves. Have you ever seen the commercial on TV for herpes and Valtrex, I guess it is, where there's a man and a woman, young, in their 20s, and they're sitting there in front of the TV camera, and he says, I have herpes. Right there, this is National Network TV primetime commercial. National primetime. He says, I have herpes. And she says, and I don't. And together they say, and we're trying to keep it that way. And I'm like, okay, fine, that's good. You'll never, ever see an HIV commercial on national network primetime TV saying that. And then the voiceover says, it's been proven that herpes can be spread even without an actual outbreak. And I'm thinking, okay, that could be like HIV. HIV can be spread even without signs or symptoms. And then he says, so I take my medicine because I'm trying to reduce the risk of transmission and treat myself. And I'm thinking, okay, that's an HIV message too. Take your meds. And then the voiceover again says... However, herpes can be transmitted even without an outbreak. So, but if you have an outbreak, we recommend that you practice safe sex. Verbally, audibly, on this national commercial, the voice says, We recommend that you practice safe sex. And then the kicker, little subscript print on the bottom of the screen says, and it, what they mean is the Valtrex, but they say, proven in heterosexual couples only, only. And I'm thinking, oh, that's what it is. Herpes is a heterosexual STD. And heterosexual STDs are, first of all, absolutely acceptable. Quite normal. No big whoop. Stick it on a TV commercial. Put it during the Super Bowl. Nobody cares because it's a straight disease. It's a heterosexual disease, according to them. And heterosexual couples in society are expected and allowed to have sex. Therefore, use a condom because condoms will work. They will work. We will say that on TV. Use a condom, it will work. But. HIV, oh, that's a gay disease, and we don't want gays to have sex. So we will, first of all, never have an HIV commercial, right? Because that's, oh, my God, now we're promoting homosexuality. But we won't have an HIV commercial. And we have to tell people that condoms don't work. Condoms are unreliable. Condoms don't work. Just say no until you get married because HIV, homosexuality, amoral, can't do it, against religion, bad, bad, bad. And then I thought, well, how can you have something that is proven to work in heterosexual couples only? Does that mean that herpes knows if it's coming out of a gay man versus if it's coming out of a straight man? Or does that mean that the condom knows that it's inside a vagina versus inside of an anus? Or does that mean that Valtrex works in the DNA of heterosexual people differently than inside of a homosexual? In other words, how can you prove that something works for heterosexuals only as a couple? Well, it speaks
0: very loudly about our society, and right? it's pretty tragic, given right? that there, are, there have been no commercials
1: about HIV. No, of course not. Mm. You'll never see, I have HIV, and I don't, and we're trying to keep it that way. So I take Combovir, and we practice safe sex, proven in all couples only. We'll never, ever see that well, on national TV. I think that universally, no matter what color, no matter what sexuality preference, no matter what lifestyle, no matter where you live or anything else in your life, the unifying factor is self-esteem, believing in yourself, knowing that you love yourself and can protect yourself, knowing that anyone who doesn't believe that with you is not worth your time anyone who says, I won't use a condom with you, I will force you to have sex even if you say no, I won't give you all the facts, I will tell you one half, but not the other, anyone like that is not really interested in you as a whole person in the world. And so when people can understand that they really have to love themselves and look out for themselves and protect themselves and through that, they can protect others, and through that, they can love others, and through that, we can all, as a society, be whole again, that's where my message is. That's, that's what I'm looking at.
0: Well, Shelley, that was a great way to end this. <laughs> well, I'm afraid good. it came to an end, but thank you so much for giving us your time and your story. Um, it's been amazingly inspirational.
1: Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And I hope that people will fill out the form at the valleyplus.org website so that I can get in touch with them and tell them about all our social events, our parties, our networking.
0: Thanks for listening to This Positive Life. For more podcasts and other first-person stories, please visit us online at thebody.com. If you'd like to share your story, please email us at podcast at thebody.com.